Welcome to the IFE podcast series. Today's podcast is an IFE Growing the Global Bioeconomy seminar and features Dr. Catherine O'Sullivan from CSIRO Agriculture and Food. Dr. O'Sullivan's current research interests include interaction between plants and soil microbes involved in plant nutrition and disease, as well as the ways that researchers can help the urban agriculture industry. Her lecture, recorded on Monday the 16th of July, is entitled Supporting Urban Agriculture with Research to Improve Food Security. We hope you enjoy this IFE Growing the Global Bioeconomy Seminar. Thank you very much and thanks for having me. And thank you everyone for coming. It's, I was kind of was expecting a little intimate half a dozen people seminar, so it's really nice to see a, a room full of faces. This is, it's really interesting for me to speak on this topic because my other topics have been quite niche. So when you're talking about microbial conversion of cellulose to make methane, you get four really interested people and no one else. <laughs> when you talk about urban agriculture, everyone, has this idea, like people can see the good in this and people want it in their lives. It's, it's a very aspirational, desirable topic. But what I want to talk to you about today are the needs of the industry because unless it's supported well and farmers can make a living off this and make a profit, all of the social and environmental good that we want from this can't happen. So it needs to be well supported in the same way that field agriculture is supported. So. This seminar is really a, a roundup of a, a scoping study that I've done over the last six to 12 months, which was supported by Graham Bonnet and Lynn McIntyre, who are two of our research directors in agriculture and food at CSIRO. And Zvi Hockman pitched the uh, original idea, who's a researcher in our integrated um, farming systems, agriculture systems um, group. And really, he threw it out there as a, a what-if idea. And then when we started to look around, so he said, what if vertical farming took off? And when we looked around in CSIRO, we realised there were a lot of little bits of work that were happening that were relevant to urban agriculture, but there was no overarching research group looking at it. So we had people looking at agroecology, we had people looking at health and diet, we had people looking at controlled environment farming systems, but there was sort of, it, none of it was particularly directed at urban agriculture, it was directed at little bits and pieces of the picture. So I did a scoping study that looked at what are the research needs and is there really scope for CSIRO to make a big pitched effort in this area? And that's what I'm going to try and convince you of today. So I just really want to quickly outline what is urban agriculture because there's a lot of different definitions out there and mine will differ from other people's. I take the broadest view possible. So most people when they think of urban agriculture tend to think somewhere in here. The, the city allotments that you see around the place, open air farms, or maybe a, a modern rooftop farm is kind of the, the new generation. Things probably in the last decade in, in America and Australia are moving more into these very controlled systems where you've got roof, rooftop glass houses um, that use natural light but control the heat, uh, the temperature, uh, humidity, the growing environment and more recently into indoor vertical systems. And Japan has really been the pioneer in this space where it's stacked, it's all artificially lit, every element of the environment is completely controlled. But from an Australian context and, and in many other countries of the world, I would argue that peri-urban farming is really a critical part of urban farming. 
In Australia, um, I've seen some stats that say urban horticulture, so fruit and veg farming, um, in, in a peri-urban sense, takes up about 3% of the land, but makes about 25% of the gross agricultural value. And it's under pressure as our cities spread. So these farms are getting pushed either further out onto more marginal soils, and they're having to move from open air into controlled environments or move from the peri-urban fringe and essentially become urban as the cities move out into them. So I include everything in my definition from the peri-urban lettuce farmer right up to the advanced indoor vertical farmer. So I just want to give you a few descriptions and examples. I want to start off at the grassroots level. The community farms, gardens and allotments sort of form two, well not two, a continuum of roles in different places. So in some parts of the developing world, these urban farms are critical sources of food and income for residents. In some parts of very wealthy countries like America, they're also a critical source of food for residents who don't have access to a lot of fresh food, either because of their circumstances or because of where they live. Um, they also play a really important role in terms of what's referred to in the literature as participatory schemes. So these have a lot of value in terms of bringing communities together and getting people interacting, affecting people's food choices, affecting people's exposure to farming and healthy food and how food is made and the risks involved and all those sorts of things. They also have a documented positive effect on people in terms of physical well-being from getting active and getting moving. The next couple of examples I'm going to give you are from a recent um, trip that I did to the US. So while I was over there for a conference, I got in and saw as many different types of urban farms as I could in a small area. So these are all from the New York area. This is a farm called Brooklyn Grange. It is an urban rooftop farm on top of a 10-storey building in the Brooklyn Navy Yards. Now, this is still an active industrial building. There's furniture factories, um, artists' studios. It's, it's a, a mixed occupant building. And the Navy Yards is still an active Navy Yard. On the roof, they've imported um, ten, a 10-centimetre depth of artificial soil and they're operating a commercial farm. This farm in particular is about two acres. In total, they have three and a half acres across two different sites, and they're producing around about 20 tonnes per year of produce. It's a mixed revenue business, so the produce alone doesn't support the company, but they do a lot of events, they host weddings, they have you know, farm-to-plate dinners, they have yoga, they do tours, those sorts of things. They have two different accesses uh, ways that they access the market. They have a wholesale um, where they produce leafy greens and sell directly to restaurants, mainly in the, you know, supporting local restaurants who want to support local food. And then they also have what they call a CSA, which is community-supported community agriculture. And that's a subscription program where you pay in monthly and you get a box of their fresh produce for that month. Their wholesale market is really about leafy greens and herbs. Their CSA is a little bit more diverse. They have some tomatoes, eggplants, um, you know, cucumbers, those sorts of things. 
This is a really highly seasonal operation. They built two of these little polytunnels so that over winter, when they shut down for essentially five months of the year because of the New York's harsh winters, they could keep some staff on. So these grow microgreens over the winter and really they're about keeping their highly skilled staff because they found that every year they were having to start again from scratch because they'd lose their staff. They have issues with wind erosion and with drainage because of their location. The next one I visited was Gotham Greens. This is one of four farms that are operational and they have a lot more in development. It's, it's kind of hard to tell because they're in the venture capital startup world so they're getting money thrown at them from a lot of different places um, and they're a bit secretive about what they're doing. They have a partnership with Whole Foods Markets to build these rooftop glass house systems. This particular farm is in Goannis in Brooklyn. It's about four acres in total and produces about 200 tonnes per year of, uh, uh, sorry, uh, this one is half an acre and produces 200 tonnes per year. Again, dominated by leafy greens and herbs. They do do some tomatoes and berries, but I would say probably 90% of their business is leafy greens and herbs. And just as an, an aside, it's sort of part of the whole image of Whole Foods markets. You can see their um, car park shade is all provided by a solar system. They have wind towers. So it fits with their Whole Foods image to have these visible farms on their roof. This is a small startup called Square Roots, which is a modular container farm. It's an interesting concept. They have a campus of 10 containers in a car park in the middle of Brooklyn in what was an old Pfizer fertilizer and drug factory. The, each container gets assigned a farmer, and it's not actually a production company, it's more of an education business model. So the idea is the farmer comes in for a year and gets given their container, which is fully set up. This is completely um, voice activated, it's got LED lighting that um, you can adjust the spectra, it's got temperature and humidity control, a whole box and dice. Of 25 hours of labour per week, they can produce 50 kilos of food which sounds impressive until you realise that's only going to give them somewhere between $500 and $1,000 of income and the other 15 work hours plus of their week is about connecting with their customers and delivering to their customers. So they have to run the whole business. For the company who are running this as an education facility, this seems to work quite well. I would argue that for each individual farmer, they need to scale or this is going to be a very rough way to make a living. Again, dominated by leafy greens and herbs. And the last example I want to give you is Aero Farms. This is a large, fully indoor vertical farm in Newark, New Jersey. They, again, produce leafy greens, herbs and microgreens. They, this is one of four farms. They've got another five in development and they're starting to work internationally. So they're working with investors from the Middle East. They've just had a very large investment from IKEA. These are, this is one of the two in the US, I would argue, two companies that are really dominating things. There's Aero Farms and then there's Plenty. And they have different engineering but similar concepts. Indoors, soilless system. This particular one is aeroponics. The um, Plenty system is hydroponics. And they, because of this vertical stacking and artificial light, can really up their production per acreage. 
So these guys are producing about 900 tonnes per year off one and a half acres at this Newark farm. Some of the newer farms that are in development are going to be a lot larger than this in scale. And the way their particular system works is that they have this um, material which is uh, a part of their patented, protected technology, but it looks a bit like polar fleece. And you can see this is just racks of these materials with seeds planted on them that are germinating. The seeds penetrate through that material and then they get slung on these racks and the roots hang down in space and are constantly misted with a nutrient solution. The lights provided on top, again, can be spectrally controlled to provide whatever light spectra they like. They do sell into supermarkets, but a lot of their business is, is dominated by restaurants and wholesale as well because of the demand. So that was just to give you an idea of the kinds of things and just to, to make it clear that we're talking about everything from community systems through to fully commercial large-scale systems. And I think there's space, CSR is a large organisation and if you consider universities, there's research questions to be addressed across that whole spectrum and there's space for them all to be addressed is, would be my argument. If you move to that commercial end of the system, big business is really starting to take notice and make big investments. It's in, in the US, it's really dominated by venture capital, startup, entrepreneurial sort of culture. There is some debate about the overall social good of that model compared to somewhere like the Netherlands where this system has been going. I mean, the Netherlands are world leaders in greenhouse growing um, and intensive horticulture. And it grew up much more organically. There's much more of a community. It's not, not so protected and IP-based. But the advantage of the IP-based system is that these companies can see, so the companies who are doing the investing, can see a way to recoup their investments. So it does bring money into the system. So there's pros and cons. Now, I apologise, but I'm going to introduce a little bit of CSIRO jargon here to make a point. These are our six impact areas. So these are the major categorizations of research where CSIRO agriculture and food is directing its energy at the moment. So not everything but the vast majority of our research fits under one of these categories. And the reason I put this up here is to make the point that urban agriculture needs all of this. Basically urban agriculture needs the same amount or the same breadth of research that field agriculture has historically had to support and make farmers profitable. So in transforming yield, they need genetics and diversity. And I'm going to, I'll name all of these off, but then I'm going to go into each one in detail um, and, and pick them apart a bit. So they really need plants that are bred for the systems and they really need to diversify away from leafy greens and herbs. For closing yield gaps, they need engineering of new systems and optimization of the systems that they have. And the end game really about closing yield gaps isn't so much about the same sort of production per unit water or production per unit input that you have in field agriculture. It's all about yield per unit energy. If the energy is one of their critical costs. Transforming value I find is a really interesting one. As soon as you start talking to the industry, they, there is a really broad realisation that once you're in these very controlled farming systems, you don't need to breed for drought resistance and environmental tolerance. So suddenly you can start breeding for 
consumer-driven traits, high nutrition value, taste, texture, all those sorts of things. Digitizing agriculture is all about automation and environmental control. In the US, this is a really hot topic because this is where the companies can see IP that they can capture and make money from, but it's also really critical to making these farms profitable, and I'll pick that apart a bit in a moment. Sustaining the base is where a lot of CSIRO's um, agro-environmental and agroecology falls because it's about sustaining the agricultural base, so the soil, water health, um, climate health. There's a lot of questions in urban agriculture, I would argue, under sustaining the base. If you do a Google search and just start doing some reading, the media hype around this really makes it sound like it can change the world and we can completely transform things and feed the world from within a city with no climate risk. And, but if you start to pick it apart, there's a risk of greenwashing from those statements not being true, which will damage the reputation of the industry. But there's also a risk of putting a lot of money and energy into systems that don't actually help the environment all that much. And there needs to be a lot of work around closing the loop. Everyone says that you bring these systems into the city where waste is created and where there's a lot of energy and water moving around. But when you actually go and visit these farms, I would say it's the, it's the exception rather than the rule that they're using a lot of closed loop systems. Informing policy and practice, I would argue, is another area that is actually huge. So the social impact, health and economics of these farms is, it's got attention, there's a body of literature out there, but it, it's potentially massive, the impact that it could have. Okay, so I'm just gonna step through these one by one. Um, this list, I should point out, is by no means exhaustive. This is my take on what the, the needs of the industry are. You probably have a list of your own research questions that could be added to this very easily. I think transforming yield is a really important one. As I said, the, the industry at the moment is really heavily dominated by leafy greens. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Leafy greens are really high value. So if you compare them to your broadacre staple crops, they don't weigh very much, but you get a lot of money per kilo for them. So there's the double down. They also have a really short life cycle. So when I was talking to Aero Farms, they were saying that their standard salad greens, so baby spinach and rocket and those sorts of standard salad greens have a turnover of about three weeks, give or take. Their microgreens are worth twice as much and take five days to turn over. So a lot of these companies, because the market demand is larger than the supply at the moment, companies are moving more and more into the extreme of supplying microgreens, which for the profitability of the farms is great, but if you want to really start tackling human health and nutrition, it's not all that useful. So they need to be able to grow more complex crops profitably. And to do that, they really need a concerted breeding effort that is targeted at these systems. Now, the problem with that is that there's little breeding effort at the moment because this industry is in its infancy and it's so small that the big breeding companies can see a future market, but the market isn't there for them to be breeding these seeds yet. So it, it really needs input from potentially the academic space to do some of the pre-breeding to convince these companies to start moving into this space. Yeah, and as I said, there's a need to optimise the leafy crops, but really it's going to have to be a transformation for the fruiting crops because to produce a fruit crop energetically 
um, profitably, it's a much longer growing time and it needs much higher energy input for photosynthetic needs. So these crops are really, so you know, strawberries, tomatoes, berries, there's all these crops that really could be well suited to these systems because they don't transport or store all that well. So traditionally they've been bred to be firm and to ripen slowly and to be picked before they're ripe and all these things that they made the fruit fit the distribution system, you can turn that on its head and breed the fruit to be best for the customer and make the, the distribution system fit the fruit, but that's not as easy as it sounds. To actually do that breeding is a huge task. Um, and this, although it's a terrible example because I think staple crops like grains are really poorly suited to these systems, is just an example of the sort of thing I'm talking about. So you need to understand the fundamental interactions of how light and hormones regulate wheat architecture and that sort of fundamental knowledge is needed first to feed into the breeding programs to get the transformation that we need. Um, and just as an aside, the reason I think that staple crops are poorly suited to these systems is that we grow them fairly efficiently in broadacre. They store and transport really, really well. So we should be focusing our energies of urban farming in crops for human nutrition rather than crops for calories. So calories we can provide fairly well from broad agriculture, but the highly nutritious horticultural crops that don't store and that lose their nutritional value as they're stored are really good targets for urban agriculture because you can get them to the consumer when they're at their best. Transforming yield. Like I said, there's no need to breed for environmental stresses because these systems, there are still, like Brooklyn Grange, there's still open air farms out there, but the big commercial systems are moving into controlled environment agriculture because urban land is, is expensive. You need to be able to optimise your production per unit area of land that you have. So it's going to have to go vertical to give the amount of yield per unit area to make it profitable. So that means you don't need to breed for all of the things that we've traditionally bred for. Drought, heat, frost, pest and disease tolerance. And it means you can start breeding for things that really will make these plants suit these indoor systems. This is a quick throwaway list. You could probably triple it with traits that would make these plants more suited to indoor systems. Um, but because you're controlling not just the temperature and the humidity, but potentially the light and spectra that you put in, that means you're controlling flowering time and seasonality and all these other things in there as well. Okay, closing yield gaps. As I said, this is really about optimising yield per unit energy input. And there's going to be a big flood of need for G by E by M trials. So that's genetics by environment by management. And it's something traditionally in field agriculture, I, I know CSIRO does a lot of, I know that there's a lot of other research institutes that do a lot of this. So breeders bring out a new variety. It has to be tested around the country in a whole lot of different environments with high nitrogen and low nitrogen and high water and low water and early sowing and late sowing all of those sorts of management tweaks, they're not going to be the same management tweaks, but that's going to have to happen with all of the new varieties that come into these indoor systems to optimise what's the best system for growing these at their best. 
in the US, something that was really interesting was some of the IT companies who want to get involved in this want to start developing databases of what they call, um, or they call them climate databases, I should say. So they want to say, for this, if you want to grow tomatoes in this particular vertical farm, you press the tomato button on this database and it will set the temperature and the humidity and the day length and the light intensity and all those things. It sounds fantastic. The amount of research that needs to happen to make that happen is absolutely astronomical and I don't know that the industry appreciates what they're asking of themselves, to be honest. But the upside of this is that these sorts of farms can really um, provide a buffer for environmental stresses. Um, there's a really nice research paper that shows that after um, a, a, an earthquake in Japan, it wasn't the Fukushima earthquake, but an earlier earthquake, some of the indoor farms in Japan really provided a buffer for local food because there were big shocks in commodity prices because the outdoor farms couldn't provide because of the damage. So these indoor farms sort of took some of the price shock away for the customers. And that could become really important in the face of more climate variability where, you know, crops might get wiped out by a drought, but these indoor crops will help to fill that gap to some degree. Um, and it comes down to the, to the economics. Um, retailers are really interested in this because it allows them control of supply. So there's an Australian example that isn't urban, but it's a really interesting example if you want to look it up called Sundrop Farms. They've developed a really large glasshouse system down in Port Lincoln, which is connected to a solar collector. They desalinate their own water. They use the power to power their greenhouses. They have a supply contract with Coles for tomatoes. And one of the things Coles likes about that supply contract is that it's got less wastage because they can very accurately predict how much and when they are going to supply, which the field farmers are really up against it to make those predictions very accurately. So often they have to oversupply to make sure that they meet their contractual demands. Um, so it just closes that variability down a bit. Um, and in northern um, Europe and the US, escaping seasonality is a huge part of this. Retailers want to be able to access produce that they can label as grown in the USA all through the winter in New York. They don't want to have to go down to South America, Mexico, wherever they're sourcing from at the moment because they want to be able to label it as local. The pest and disease risk one I've put a bit separately there because I think it's a really interesting question. When you talk to these farmers, they will tell you that they're spray-free because they don't need to worry about pests and disease because they're sealed from the environment. I've worked in glass houses enough to know that being sealed from the environment does not protect you from pests and diseases. <laughs> and if you look at the countries, so the Netherlands and southern Spain, for example, who've been working in controlled environment horticulture for a long time in glass houses, they have huge research programs to deal with their pest and disease issues. And these companies are so new that I believe them that they haven't had an incursion yet. I just don't believe that it's never going to happen. And the problem is when something gets inside there, the, it's a monoculture, everything's controlled to suit the plant, which is also going to suit whatever wants to attack the plant. So they're going to have problems eventually. I argue that they really need to be looking into this to um, minimise the risk. Okay, transforming value. Like I said, if you're not breeding for environmental 
um, parameters, you can start considering consumer-driven traits. The companies that are involved in leafy greens are already doing this to some degree for the leafy greens, so they want to know about taste, texture, nutrient content. They're really excited by um, secondary metabolites, so anthocyanins, carotenoids, antioxidants, because they have uh, market value. They can label those and charge a price premium, pardon me, to their consumers based on the value of those nutraceutical compounds. It's an area that is really ripe for research because it has both genetic control and environmental control. You, you have to have the genetics there in the first place, but then you can see with this lettuce, just by controlling the light spectra, you can control some of these factors. But it becomes factorial and blows out very quickly because it's not just about the light spectra, it's about the nutrients you supply, it's about the temperature, it's about the duration of the light. There, and if we understand the fundamental fundamental genetics behind these, we'll be able to control them a lot better. Now, for nutraceuticals in food, that's kind of interesting. Where it becomes really critical is when you start moving into the drug market. So one of the things I learned recently <coughs> me, in cannabis is with the move into medicinal cannabis on a large scale, so it's really largely controlled in Canada at the moment, but it's taking off in the US, the genetics of cannabis isn't really well isn't very stable, so it's not very well controlled. A lot of the control happens at the environmental level. So yes, you have to have the right kinetics to have low THC and high whatever your target drug is, but you also have to really carefully control the growth environment to make sure that you are delivering to your customer, who is a patient, what they need for their condition. Because often they're not extracting and isolating a compound, they are giving the customer either an, an oil from the plant or whole plant parts. So they really need to have careful controls over how they're growing their plant to get what they expect. This one I've put here because it's quite close to my own heart. My brother has cancer at the moment and he is receiving MAB drugs as part of his treatment and they've been very successful. This is produced in a plant by a factory called iBioCMO which has a huge facility in Texas. They genetically engineer plants to produce the proteins that are the precursors for these MAB drugs. They can then grow them up at scale and produce a lot of these drugs cheaply to then make cancer drugs more accessible to the market. This is a really important part of the science of indoor growing because it's about, I mean, this is a successful example, but it's about a lot more than this. They, they do a lot of veterinary drugs, so basically anything protein-based that you can express in a plant can potentially go through these systems and it becomes a much cheaper drug manufacturing process. Okay, digitizing agriculture. This is a graph from a company called Agrilist who do an annual survey of North American growers. So this is just for North American growers, but I think it's true that you can extrapolate the data across the industry. What I want to point out to you here is 56% and 27%. Their costs in these farms are dominated by labor and energy. To some degree, this is taken up by rent, but a very large part of this 27% is about energy. These companies not only suffer from having to pay for labor, which is expensive because you have to pay pay rates that are livable in an urban area, not livable in a regional area, so they're often quite different pay rates, but also they can't get the stuff that they need. So they desperately want automation and control systems that can help them cut their labor costs and labor needs, 
and help them cut their energy costs. I haven't said much more about that here because this is, well, partly because it's, it's outside my understanding to a large degree, but also because it's a really big target of research. So the industry, in America at least, has a lot going on in this space, but it's really secretive because everyone wants to control their IP. So getting people to talk about the automation that they're doing or that they want is, is a bit of a challenge. But I would argue that it's a critical part of making these big indoor farms work. Sustaining the base. So like I said, um, the green credentials is a big part of the urban agriculture story and I think it really needs careful assessment. Not to, um, I, don't, I, wouldn't, I don't think it's going to discredit the industry. I don't think you can sort of make big bold statements that urban agriculture isn't green, but I think we need to have data behind these statements to make sure that we maintain customer trust. And if you say it's green, it actually is green. And this food miles data is a really good example. So this is from a paper by um, Weber in 2008. And they showed that for pretty much all classes of foods, but particularly for red meat and dairy, the vast majority of CO2 emissions come during the production phase. And the transport phase is a very small part of the cost. Now this matters because if you say we're going to make a big indoor farm in Newark and grow food so we don't have any food miles instead of transporting it from California, what you're actually saying is we're going to build a big energy hungry CO2 producing factory to grow something and save a fractional part of the CO2 that that would have had. So it really there are systems that will be more green than the field system, but each system on a case-by-case -case basis really needs life cycle analysis to honestly assess where are the benefits and where are the costs of these systems. Closing the loop is a really nice example of that, actually. So the water story is really great. If you look at lettuce, some of these aeroponic and hydroponic systems use upwards of 90% less water than a field-grown lettuce um, per kilo. And that's because they are recycling a lot of their water. They're also collecting humidity from the air and using that as a water input. They have really tight environmental controls so they don't have drainage and leakage losses and those sorts of things. But if you extend that life cycle analysis boundary out and include the production side of things, all of these factories are producing a ready-to-eat product. And the amount of water they need to use in the washing and processing part of the factory is often not included in that equation. Now, that's not to say they might still be much better than a field-produced uh, lettuce if you include both production and processing, but it needs to be assessed as a whole and you need to be very careful where you put those boundaries. Waste heat, there are some really nice examples around where particularly for um, building integrated farms, so the, the Goannis uh, Gotham Greens example where you have a greenhouse on the roof. There are benefits both for the building in terms of insulation and lowering their heating needs and cooling needs, but also for the farm itself because they, they have some heating from underneath from the activities of the building. So there are some really nice linkages there in using um, waste heat and energy 
if the designs are done carefully. But again, it needs a lot of careful research, both from an architectural and a, a, a life cycle analysis perspective. Nutrients, I think, is a really interesting one. Everyone talks about recycling nutrients. What I've seen is that the open-air farms like Brooklyn Grange and your community farms are using compost, but when they get up to scale, like Brooklyn Grange, they're struggling to get the compost they need at the quality they need to produce the product that they need. The soilless farms really want to go organic. They want organic certification. So Plenty and Aero Farms want to be able to say that they're an organic product, and at the moment they can't because it's really hard to get organic nutrients for a soilless system. When you add in the fact that they are also spray-free, so you need a sterile, organic, soluble nutrient, I think that's a really interesting research question. How do you take waste products and make it into a product that fits with these farming systems so that they can be organically certified? And there's some niche questions around recyclable and um, compostable growth media. There's some farms using cocoa peat and those sorts of products, but there's different farms have different needs based on their engineering. And I think there's scope there to be taking waste products and making designed solutions that fit these farms and their systems. The other really interesting part of research in the sustaining the base area is around ecosystem services. And this is, I, I initially was quite sceptical, um, I must say. I thought how much impact, if you consider a city like Sydney, how much impact can a couple of urban farms have? But there's actually some really nice um, large-scale studies that have been done that have started to model the full effects that these have on food production, heating and cooling costs, rainwater runoff control, and they're really significant. And I think that sort of research can really help to support the industry in their claims that, yes, we are making cities more livable in these specific ways. It's not just sort of a motherhood statement that's nice. These are the ways that these farms will help make your city more ecologically sustainable. And that sort of has a, a flow on into human ecology if you bring the humans into the system. In the US, there's a lot of talk about food deserts. So in their big cities, New York and Chicago, you can have people who are living in the center of a city but don't have access to fresh fruit and vegetables. And there's been some really interesting research which really surprised me that this is an issue in Sydney as well. Melbourne, not so much because of the design of the city and the satellite cities. But in Sydney, there are people who, it's about people, it's, um, sorry, the concept is all people having access to fresh fruit and vegetables. So if someone doesn't have a car and they have trouble with transport, they need to have somewhere close that they can go get their fruit and vegetables. So it's not enough to argue that five kilometres away there's a Woolworths because your retiree who has trouble walking is going to struggle to get to that. So it's about having each node of the city having access to fresh fruit and veg. And some of these systems are making a really big impact in those areas. It's also about having visibility of fresh food. So one of the interesting side effects in the US case was people with um, diabetes and heart conditions related to obesity, 
those tended to go down in areas where these urban farms became more common. And it was argued that it's not just about people accessing the fresh food, it's about people having a lot of cues. So the, the environment becoming less obesogenic because people have visual stimulation about fresh food in their environment is the argument in the literature. Again, it's something that needs a lot of work to really flesh out and get the data to support these ideas. And there's an, a nice body of research out there about the impacts on physical well-being and social cohesion from people actually being physically involved in these sorts of schemes. And it's, I would argue that it's not as peripheral as, if you start to move into the really highly commercial end of the urban farming systems, you, you risk losing those sorts of benefits. So it's important part of the research to say, how much do we need to support these open air participatory schemes? What are the value of those um, for society as a whole as this industry starts to scale and progress? Um, and I touched briefly on this before, this idea of food security at a local and regional level. There's different markets and different drivers for different countries, but if you take the Middle East as an example, there's a huge demand for indoor farms in uh, Dubai and Saudi Arabia because at the moment they are paying a fortune for food that has been shipped a long way and stored a long time. So they're getting poorer quality on average for a higher price. So Emirates has just partnered with a company called Crop One to build an enormous facility in Dubai and their motivation is about quality, not necessarily about price. So they're prepared to pay a premium to get fresh food that's high quality and as well as feeding into the Emirates um, catering facility, they're feeding into a lot of the high-end restaurants. In Japan and China, the motivation is a little bit different. There's a very big demand from consumers for food safety and provenance. So particularly after the Fukushima disaster, people want to understand where their food came from, how it was grown, is it safe? And the same, same in China because of some food safety disasters. In the US, it's a bit more about uh, seasonality and continuity of supply. So they want to be able to say they can locally produce food year round, no matter the outside conditions. So there's different demands in different markets, but the overarching idea is that these urban and indoor farms can because they can control their environment, they can control the supply and they can have a really clear story of how this food was grown and where it came from, where it goes to market. There's a real need for policy and regulation, interaction with research, I would say. So because the industry is in its infancy, in a lot of cases um, in the US and in Australia, what's happening is that entrepreneurs are coming up and wanting to start these farms and they are having to do the battle basically of getting regulations in place or getting regulations changed to fit their farms. But there is a burgeoning area of research that's starting to show some of the flow on economic impacts from the revitalization of brownfield sites. And it's really quite extensive because if you build an indoor farm in an area, particularly either a glasshouse or an open air farm that improves the visual amenity of an area, 
that then starts to attract other food businesses and it can become a bit of a local food hub that can then rejuvenate an area as a whole. So there is starting to be some of that economic and social research done, but I would argue that there's a heck of a lot more space for research like that out there. And it needs to be supported by, by and communicating with, with policy and government leaders. The labour supply question is a little bit different because it has pluses and minuses. So I learnt recently one of the upsides of these very modern high-tech farms is that they're attracting young people back to agriculture in regions that they'd been struggling to find labour in the past. So young people who are leaving school and didn't necessarily want to work in field agriculture like their dad did are more attracted to a really high-tech indoor system, um, is the argument. And to make that point clear, this is a little bit old now, it's about a month old now, but these were open positions with plenty. So the sort of um, skill set that they're looking for is extremely different than your average farm labourer. And that comes at a price, both economically and educationally. So there needs to be a shift in agri traditional agricultural education to support these farms because the sort of skill sets are really different. But there's also an argument that it will raise the conditions for the average farm worker from a field labourer into a, a technologist who's working in an advanced system and give them better working conditions. But there will necessarily need to be less of them because they are then very expensive. So it's, there's so many trade-offs around labour that, that need to be worked through. So this is my final slide and I just wanted to leave you with the take-home message that I believe this is a viable part of the farming system. It's not going to feed the world, but it can provide a source of highly nutritious food at a reasonable price for a growing population. But to make all of the social and environmental benefits true, it has to be economically and financially viable. Farmers need to be able to make a living wage in a city, which is often very different to a living wage in a regional area. Um, these are, again, some data from the AgriList survey. And they make the point that the profitability by farm type is really variable. They argue that, the argument that AgriList makes is that the reason indoor farms are not profitable yet is because they're young. So they're really capital intensive and they've pumped a lot of money into building these farms and getting them going, but they aren't yet realising a profit because of the amount of capital they pumped in. And the argument is that they can and will be profitable given time. Um, and my argument is that that requires the research base behind it to help them get there. And that's all from me. So thank you very much for your time. Um, You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.